Today I'm here with Ben Edmonds, affectionately known as Innovation Ben. And I was just telling him very quickly before we went online that I saw him speak at an event, I think it was about a year ago. And my... 13th of January this year. Was it? Oh, there it you go. Early this year. Yeah. So not even a year. Yeah. But I took my girls along to hear this talk on innovation because I'm a big fan of innovation. I'm a big fan of trying to think outside the box where wherever you can and I thought this could be inspiring for my two young ones and Ben didn't disappoint at all he was awesome and I remember at the time thinking I've got to interview this guy because he's got such a fascinating story to tell and well it's taken us 11 months but we got there in the end (laughs) so thank you so much for taking the time because I know that 2023 has been just a mammoth year for you so I'm excited to hear what yeah I don't think I could have packed much more in um, (laughs) without just entirely breaking. Yeah, yeah, it's been good. But you're here and you're here to tell an awesome story. So thank you so much. Can we start with what you were doing before you made this big career change? Uh, Yeah, I um, spent the last 12 and a half years at Dyson in new product innovation. Um, So I was working on the future future of environmental care. So I was heading up by the time I left, I was a principal engineer there. Uh, and I was heading up the the future of uh, environmental care. So it's like fans, heaters, humidifiers, that kind of thing. Um, but the kind of stuff I was doing was like the future, future of that. So it's all sorts of things you wouldn't have seen before. Is like, where could the company go? And they were all the things I was working on. None of which I can tell you because it's all very secret. All very top secret. I know. Yes, well, I, I, I know quite There's a few people that. To get in. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, this is it. I, I know quite a few people that either have worked at Dyson or are currently working there and they 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 confirm that it's all top secret and with good reason I totally understand so uh, so you were there for 12 years in the end were you 12 and a half the half right okay is, is meaningful and I <laughs> seem to remember from your talk that there was a, a little bit of coming and going and there was there, there was mention of the leaving gifts becoming smaller, and oh, smaller or less well, significant. Dyson was my third company I worked for. So okay. I started off my career um, at a security company uh, making um, yeah, security systems for buildings. And that company, yeah, I, I left there, uh, I think, four or five times. I've right. lost count. It was too okay. many. And by the yeah. time I left, like every time I left, the, the leaving present got smaller and smaller. And when I last left, they were like, I'm not even going to give you anything. But we're not going to listen. We're not going to remove you from the books just in case you come back. And I did actually <laughs> go on to work for them as a consultant for some other stuff, like later in my career. But um, yes, I I've left a few places and I've left one of them a lot of times. Right. So Dyson wasn't the one that you left a lot of times. No, no, no. Oh, I was there okay. consistently from 2011 right. uh, until uh, officially the fourth of October this year. Oh, right. Okay. So you did stay on a little while longer. Yeah, it's very recent. Yes. So one of the things that made me want to talk to you was uh, the fact that, so when I talk to my clients about their career changes, some people feel like they have to make this massive leap when they change from Mm. one thing to another. And that is quite daunting for very obvious reasons for a lot of people. And the reason I really wanted to talk to you is because you took this staggered approach which I like to call toe dipping which is where you sort of experiment with other things outside of your nine to five or whatever hours you tend to work um so that's I'd love to talk about that if that's okay because I know you were sort of yeah I I, I the right word well it kind of yeah it accidentally stemmed all the way back to the security company actually that's the first time I properly like officially did something after hours for somebody and then got paid for it um, and it, it was the the son of the, the the factory owner there. He had his own um, IT business, and he'd seen some of the graphic work that I'd done. And so he just asked me, you know, do you, could you do like business cards and flyers and, and logos and stuff like that? I'm like, uh, yeah, probably. Um, and that was uh, a long time ago. That would have been sort of 2005, that, that sort of time. In fact, possibly before that. Um, and that was my first experience of, oh, so what, you don't have to go and work for a company for somebody to pay you to do some work. This is interesting. Um, and then I've kind of used that consistently through the whole career. So this, the, you call it toe dipping, fishing, whatever I call it. Um, I have consistently since then, basically nearly for nearly 20 years now, been doing the day job, whatever the day job happens to be, but also um, spending time in the evenings doing various different things. Um, to the point where my kids have a song that they sing about me 
Um, I won't sing it because that would be horrendous, but the, the lyrics are basically, it's very, it's very easy. Uh, Dad makes loads of money all the time. And they repeatedly sing that uh, with, with a song. And it's true. I'm always making stuff. I'm always doing stuff. I'm always getting various different sort of side gigs and things like that going. Um, <laughs> my wife has threatened to rename herself Rodney on more than one occasion because next year, this time next year, Rodney, um, I hope that somebody will get the reference. Uh, Can you yeah, tell I've me been, why? Doing... Where, like, where did this desire come from to do bits outside? Was it a financial incentive? Yeah, there's a, bun or... a bunch of stuff to it. Okay. Predominantly financial. Life is expensive, right? And and I've got three kids, so all the monies. Uh, and I live in the southwest of England as well. Um, and the nature of having three kids, uh, it would be uh, tricky for my wife to work. She was working before. Um, before we had children and before we moved to Spain, which is a different story, some years ago. Um, but yeah, there's there's a need to make money, right? You, mm -hmm. These things are not free. Uh, this house is not free, and the life we lead is not free. So there's a there's a need to make money, but equally, I have a natural need to want to be creative, and I love making, creating. I've been doing it my entire life, and it turns out that the things I make, people seem to really like them and seem to want to give me money for them. So whether it's uh, Christmas jumpers this year um, or I did um, I did about 400 um, advent calendars last year and I make tables and furniture and all sorts of other weird and wonderful things, most of which I've had to pause this year because it's been so crazy with work. Um, but, yeah, people like to give me money for things that I do. I mean, that's that's it sounds like a terrible problem that you've got there. It, well, it's, it's more like a bad habit, actually, <laughs> because it is great. Don't get me wrong. I, I shouldn't lift a, lift a gift horse in the mouth. But... The nature of making for anybody that's listening to this that, that is a maker they will know that making stuff takes absolutely ages so i'm having to get better at saying no to good things yeah because yes i would love to make you a table i'd really like to make a table do i have time to make a table i don't have time so i, I keep having to sort of say no to stuff at the minute um because that, uh, as <laughs> there are only 24 hours in a day and you really shouldn't work all of them and on multiple occasions this year, I've worked probably like 36 hours in a day um, to the point where I actually put myself in hospital early this year. So I, you know, I'm trying to get the work balance right. I've really pushed it very, very hard. And I'm mm. trying to sort of pair that back to something that is realistic. I mean, without going very, very serious, very early on in this conversation, are you OK to talk about the hospital thing? Uh, yeah, if you like. Yeah. What happened? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I ended up um, having really, really bad, like stabbing pains in my chest. I was, I was working away with Dyson somewhere in the country. I won't mention where, but uh, yeah, throughout the day, I started having um, sort of palpitations in my chest that got worse and worse, and I was trying to sort of shrug it off and just crack on. Uh, and then I was like, if one of my staff had this issue, one of my team had this issue, I would 100% tell them to go to hospital. So I sort of had to tell myself to go to hospital, and then it was yeah. You can work too much, it turns out. It's true. So was it something that went it, away? I have no idea. I have, I, no, it's one of those really annoying things where I have no idea what it was. And I left the hospital, I think, at four in the morning um, after a ridiculous debacle. Nothing to do with the NHS. It wasn't their fault at all. They're amazing. Ultimately, I ended up not knowing anything about it. All my test results came back fine. But I think it's just kind of like a, a wake-up call. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a sign, right, that your body's going, hang on a tick. What's going on? Yeah. You're, yeah. you're just doing a little bit too much here. A hundred percent. Yeah. I, I, when I say this has been the most mental year of my life, it a hundred percent has. And this isn't even the year when I broke my back, because that was pretty crazy. And that was, I guess you could probably tell you that that was stemming from working too much. I, yeah. By the way, I don't suggest that the way that I do things is a good way for other people to do things almost at all. I genuinely am trying to long-term work towards a, a better work-life balance. I work a lot, mostly because I really enjoy it. I really, really enjoy it. I love making, I love the chase of solving the problem. I've worked th just this weekend, probably 40 hours just in this weekend, solving a problem for my accountant, which is, I'm, I'm very excited about doing it because it's anybody we've spoken to about the problem, they've said, if you can solve that, take my money. I love it. I mean, we all sit around trying to solve problems for our accountant, for sure. That's one of the things about your talk that mm. I saw earlier this year is your passion for what you do just oozes out of every part of you. 
which is for me, like, because I'm such a career nerd and I, I love it when people love what they do to me was just like, I don't know. I obviously everybody came out of there on a high. It was a real buzz, but that was something that you created in the room. Right. Is it is innovation and creating stuff? Has that always been part of who you are? Uh, Were you like I, that as a kid? Yeah, yeah. I pretty much came out of the room with scissors. Um, my mum's an artist, a sculptor, uh, an author. She's a, an award-winning embroiderer. Um, and uh, only really recently, I remembered that my dad used to be massively into photography when we were kids. Like we had like slide projectors, and we'd have a slideshow. Uh, with all the incredibly retro stuff that kids these days have got no idea what it was like. Um, but yeah, I, work, I, I was in a very, very creative household. Uh, in fact, before we were born, my mum used to have a kiln in the back garden and she, she had to sort of demolish that when we were born because it was dangerous, but she didn't get rid of the bricks. So I used to use the bricks to be able to build stuff when I was a kid. But yeah, I've been making and creating a building forever. I, I remember remember getting some pliers in my stocking many, many years ago and I used all of the packaging to then make a stacker system to keep my pliers and screwdrivers and all sorts of stuff together. And that was definitely before I was 10. Wow. Um, next to my bed, I used to have what I would now refer to as a shadow board. I'd marked out where all the things should live, all the tools and all the bits and pieces. Um, and then, you know, when I was 11, I, uh, I built a, an aerial runway or a zip line, people call it a death slide, mm -hmm. those names, uh, in my back garden, I saved up my pocket money, um, bought 20 meters of steel cable and myself built it between the dead pear tree and the cherry tree and then I also didn't stop there I cut up my climbing frame took a ladder section out of it so I could have it off two pulleys and I could sit on it and fly through the trees like Aladdin love um, it so have I always made stuff yes yes, yes I have. and it sounds like your parents were creative but were they also encouraging of your creativity yeah there, there's one particular moment I always bring it back to uh, in particular um, and that is um, my my mum uh, was watching me cut out a, a picture of my hand. Um, and I think I was around like five or six, but I remember it quite vividly um, that I was doing one, a pretty shoddy job and two, that she wouldn't help me. And it wasn't that she wouldn't help me when I asked her, could you do this for me? She's like, well, yeah, whilst I could, I'm not going to, you can do it. Um, and that that is absolutely like the foundational thing for me because in that moment, I was like, I'm not going to do a good job of this. Like, I, this is going to be rubbish. And she goes, so? Like, what's the worst that can happen? You know, you've got to kind of start somewhere. And and I talk a lot about this quite a lot, but I think it's it's really foundational. In that moment, she gave me a license to fail. And that genuinely has been the absolute foundation of my entire career. Um, and it's essentially necessary for innovation to occur. Yeah. You are not innovating, I don't believe, if you're doing everything that's always been done before, that's just yeah. learning. And you're, you're doing innovating. everything right. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And doing it all right and, and getting it 100%, you know, all that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. If you're not failing, you're not trying hard enough. That, that's that's yeah. why I'm it's, on that it's so It's so cliche, but it's cliche for a reason, isn't it? Yeah, it's true. Yep, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, so yeah. you're at Dyson for 12 odd years. And yeah. I mean, I'm going to make an assumption here, but I feel like for somebody like you, who loves to invent stuff, who loves to mm. think outside the box and come up with new ideas. It it feels like from the outside looking in that Dyson should have been the perfect playground for you. Yeah, absolutely. It was my dream job. So outside my DT lab when I was 12, we were all chatting about what we wanted to do in the future. I don't know why we were so career focused at the age of 12, but we were. And I remember saying to my friends, you know, I know exactly what I want to do. I want to be a design manager at Dyson. That's what I wanted to do. And in 2011, in February, I, I walked in there as a lead designer and, and then left as a, as a principal, having gone all the way up to design manager, senior design manager, and then to principal. So, yeah, it, was it the best place for me to work? Absolutely. It was literally like the Willy Wonka's um, factory of, uh, of engineering. I'm going to ask you, I know that Dyson, for very obvious reasons, do you have to be quite secretive about what they mm. do? So you might not be able to, you might not be allowed to answer this. But I'm curious because what I've heard is that Dyson is full of amazing people like you who've amazing brains, who mm. are probably some of the best engineers in the world. That you work on a solution for something for months, sometimes even years. Mm. 
And then the big boss comes along and literally in one minute goes, yeah, I don't like that. Back to the drawing board. Is that something that happens or have I just made that up? The trick is to not let it get to years before the big boss sees it. Right. So I was very fortunate. My position in the company meant that I was quite high up mm -hmm. and it meant that we had access to James more regularly. But I think, call it Dyson, call it whatever company you're talking to, but fundamentally, I think the, th the, the main thing is if you've got a key stakeholder that has a say in what you're doing, mm -hmm. then wouldn't it be a good idea to get them bought into the project as early as possible and get them fully aligned with what you're doing so that you can just be like, right, we're all agreed. I'm going to go and crack on and get it done. Yeah. So it, I don't, it's not really a, a Dyson thing. It's, it's every company I've ever worked at. If you don't get those significant people involved early enough and have regular meetings with them to ensure that you're course correcting towards the right goal, yeah. then anybody can come along and derail your project. Yeah, which must be hugely frustrating. I think when you have worked on something and it's sort of your baby that you've you know brought on this journey and then somebody right. goes, nah, start again. It must be quite difficult. I, I think I would really struggle with that. Yeah. You do, you get invested. You know, when those problems become so passionate to you, it's every day of your working life. And when it's something you really, really believe in, mm. it, you know, have I worked on projects that have been stopped many times? 100%. You know, I was there for, for 12 and a half years. And if you look at my my rate of release of products uh, over that time, it's quite slim compared to other companies. But we were constantly trying to push the boundaries. You know, you don't get things straight out the door if you're working on something that's really hard, that's really difficult, that's never been done before. But as I say, the, the trick is is agreeing categorically what problem are we actually solving here? And is it the right problem? Mm. Because engineers will engineer. We have an absolute tendency to see something and want to solve it. And it's yeah. like, great, well done. Was that the right problem? That's that's yeah. the key question people should be asking themselves. Fascinating. I, I mean, genuinely quite fascinated by this. And we could probably talk about it till the cows come home. But I, I really want to ask you about what happened. At, at what point did you wake up and go, Dyson's not the right place for me anymore? Is that what happened? It's an interesting one. So I mentioned the term fishing earlier. <clears throat> I've been looking for something significantly scalable for a number of years now. I launched a business. In fact, the same year I, I joined Dyson, I launched a business uh, called Minivation designing products for classic minis. I love a classic mini. I've currently got two, I've owned eight. And I, I solved a problem there, which I then went on to sell in 44 countries around the world, which was great. Wow. But that business, it turned out, was fun, loads of fun, but was not significantly scalable, not to the point where I wanted it to be scalable. And then I accidentally started a, a kid's club. Um, which when you I'm say accidentally, in. how do you accidentally start a kid's club? Well. I live my life very publicly on social media because I found that people like, as I mentioned before, the creative stuff that I do. And if I put it on social media, people go, oh, that's great. Can I buy it? And I'm like, yes, you can. So I'd gone into my kids' school to have a look at some of the STEM stuff they were doing and to kind of get involved, just be like a helper for the day. And through no fault of the schools, you know, it's, it's not their issue at all. Um, they just don't have experience with it. But it was mediocre. Let's call it that. I'm like, well, I can definitely do better than this and so it was around that time that we were actually starting to home ed our kids this is before it was like fashionable or, or, or covid had happened or anything uh when people sort of more fly under the radar but um i put a post on facebook just talking about some of the stuff i was going to do and over the next couple of weeks a good few hundred people seemed to think that that was something great they'd love to be involved and i was like wow that was not the plan but i'm the, the nature of my job, what I do, the sort of the mindset that I have, I'm always looking for opportunities. So I'm like, well, this clearly is an opportunity. There, there's something missing here, which I could fulfill. Mm -hmm. What if I did something? So I used to strip all the furniture out of my living room every Thursday, chuck up a couple of tables and then wheel in a bunch of um, seven to, I think they were at the time, 12 year olds. And we we made some stuff. Um, and then uh, I was like, they seem to enjoy this. Actually, that's not strictly true. The first six weeks was mildly fun but mostly just herding kids. And what I found was, like most schools, like most places, most, most educational establishments, they're like, we need to tell children exactly what to do. So we're going to make exactly this, whatever this happens to be. 
and then we'll make uh, instructions so they know how to do it. And then you've then got 30 kids all asking you at the same time, what's next? What's next? I haven't got this. I haven't got a pencil. How do I move on? And then it's like, this is painful. And so some of those kids really enjoyed it. Some of them definitely didn't and they left. And then the magic moment happened when I hadn't planned anything. There's a knock at the door. It turned out it was Thursday and there were kids out there expecting to, to do some stuff with me. And I was like, right, I definitely planned this. In you come. And I had a, a whiteboard. I used to have whiteboards of like child height on my wall. And I just drew them a problem. I was like, in this moment, what on earth can I do? Let's just focus on a problem. So I just drew seven lines. I drew a, a box and I drew a step. And I said to them, how do you get the box up the step? And then over an hour and a half, we worked together to figure out what we needed to do. And all of their questions to me were turned around back to them to ask them, well, what would you do? What do you think? How big could the box be? What could the box contain? How big is the step? All that stuff. And then we worked out together that what we probably needed was a conveyor belt. And then we then proceeded to then make the conveyor belt. And by that point, there was so much more bought in to the solution than being told you're all going to make a bridge. And don't get me wrong, the hydraulic bridge was wicked and I still use it today and the kids love it. But in this moment, they were bought into the problem and we created characters and we sort of expanded on the whole thing. So they're really invested in it. And then we then made the thing that we needed to make to solve the problem. And that's become the core of everything I've done with the kids stuff, which I've now worked with kids in Hong Kong and America and New Zealand. Over lockdown, I did a load of free lessons and stuff that I just gave away to everybody, which was super fun. I got picked up by Design Week magazine because of it. And then Dyson tagged on a thing on top of it as well. That was really good. And then since then, I've done stuff in all sorts of different places, wherever I can. I've got to work with kids and do cool stuff with them. So that's how I sort of accidentally started Kids Club. Okay, brilliant. So you started that a while ago. And then how do we, between you starting this Kids Club, which Mm. I want to go back to and ask you something else about that in a minute, but you go from Kids Club to still being employed by Dyson to not being employed by Dyson. How does that work? How does that work? Well, people experience problems all the time. And um, people are often quite vocal about the problems they've got, but they might not necessarily be talking to the right problem to uh, the, the right person, sorry, to solve that problem. And so I have, in fact, the, my friend at the Barn Theatre, Yuan Lewis, was chatting to his neighbour at the time about a particular furniture related issue. And Yuan was like, great, I can't help you with that, but I know somebody who might be able to. So I went for a coffee with somebody called Terry. And we got chatting about this issue. And he said, look, there's a problem in the furniture world. Do you think you could have a go at solving that? And I was like, absolutely. I've solved the problem, so I'll give it a go. And just just over a month later, I had a, a fully working prototype to show that solved the problem. In classic prototyping world, it was quite agricultural in its outlook. Needed things to go on a diet. But it, in essence, it solved the problem. And from that sort of snowballed into... Well, working on it every single night to the point where I couldn't do the kids club and do that. So I had to say goodbye to my students, which was really hard. Uh, Over one week, I made uh, about 60 kids cry. Um, It's never good making like one kid cry. It was 60 (laughs) of them. And that was quite, it was a difficult week. But I was like, look, kids, here's, here's the thing you need to remember. The opportunity of a lifetime has to be realized in the lifetime of the opportunity and right now this is potentially the opportunity of a lifetime and i have to go after it and it is everything i've been talking to you about it's everything we've been learning and experiencing and training for and i'm going to go and do it for real and then when i've done it isn't it going to be amazing when i get to come back hopefully if it works i'll have made some more money and we can level up in bentley club and get some more cool stuff in here and even better than that imagine the stories i can tell Imagine the experience I can give you when I've gone and done it for myself, for real, on a massive scale. Because I've launched my own stuff in the past. I've sold stuff, as I say, all over the world. But this is this is a completely, like, orders of magnitude, larger, greater opportunity than anything I've done before. Yeah. So it did, <laughs> coming back to your question, did I wake up one day and go, I'm leaving Dyson? No, it was a gradual uh, attrition towards uh, a reality that just had to occur. I couldn't continue to do a full-time day job and launch an entire business on a colossal scale like this 
I, I was doing, I don't know, well over 100 hour weeks. I couldn't do it all. I just simply couldn't do it all. So something had to give. So is that what happened in January? That Was that sort of the wake up call or the sort of eureka moment where you went, okay, something's got to give and it's going to have to be my job? Or how did, how did it work? Well, if you remember, I, I stood on the stage saying that I've just had this amazing meeting, something's happening this year and I can't wait to talk to you all about it. Well, th- that was the thing. Th- this is the thing that I was talking about or referring to then. And so now, I mean, I was making prototypes every evening or, or developing stuff or doing CAD or whatever and, and getting things ready. And I think, when was it? I think it was like summertime. I went for a particular meeting and it was like, right, if we're going to do this, we need to do this. And I've been fishing for a really long time, looking for that thing, right? That thing that can be mine or, or the thing I can be significantly more part of. So where does this desire come from? Because, you know, some people would have been quite happy to just work at Dyson for, you know, for the rest of their lives. Yeah, until they retire. Thanks very much. Where, where was this desire coming from to do something else? Good question. I'm made for a bigger stage. Mm-hmm. I'm definitely made for a bigger stage and and where does uh, that come from where does that belief come from it's not for my parents I don't honestly I I don't know I think it's my wife I think it's my wife oh, it's amazing my wife has has done the best job to be able to help me to become the person that I am like to, to fully realize my potential my parents were amazing and they backed me you know with all the education side of stuff and all that kind of stuff back then but the, the sort of the adventurous more uh, spontaneous side of life uh, my wife has been absolutely critical at, at getting that to fully explode and to fully take on anything and now now I know I don't need any of these things right I don't need any of them they're lovely to have but I, if everything washed away tomorrow I'll be right I've, I've literally given away everything I've owned twice and moved with one-way tickets to another country with only what will fit under the seats and in the back of my golf or whatever it was I had at the time. And I was all right. I'm still all right. So is that before before kids or since? That was before kids. That's before yeah. kids. But there's there's they complicate story. everything, don't they? Because well, my husband and and I have done that. We've literally moved to the other side of the world with two suitcases. But it's right. easy to do when it's just the two of you. It's a little bit more complicated. We're a slightly complicated bit now just because of like exams and things coming up, mm. which makes it more difficult. But we are busy planning another escape, which is a story for another day. Yes. Um, but um, yes. Yeah. Yeah, so your wife is really your cheerleader, your... A hundred percent. Well, yeah, she is. I, I refer to her normally when I'm talking as a very understanding wife. There are not many... Not There are... I would say on on <laughs> probably no other wives that would put up with me, no other people that would put up with me at all because I'm a bit of a menace, really. I, I divided our old living room in half with permission, but with a bamboo fence. And then I had a full workshop at one end of it with a laser cutter in it and 3D printers and a workbench. I used to have a model of Bumblebee from Transformers that was my Christmas party costume that literally mounted on the wall. He was 1.7 metres long. It's ridiculous. You know, and they really they do put up with me because I, I I'm everywhere all the time making and building, and they've tried to sort of contain me in here, but I keep spilling out into other rooms. So, yeah, but she's she's amazing. Beck is is absolutely sensational. We all need somebody like that in our lives, don't we? Yeah. So, yeah, it's uh, I always think it's amazing when one person believes in us like that. You can do anything. It's it's quite it comes important. down to mindset, doesn't it? It comes mm. down to that self belief and mm. self talk. And what are you saying about yourself and what do you believe could be true? Because having done the things that I've done for the last 20 years and experienced everything I've experienced, I know that pretty much anything is possible. I've got a bit of a a chat about it, but it's essentially that there's nothing you can't do, only things you can't do yet. So I've started doing coding in the last year. I've never done anything like it before. And I'm now using AI to be able to assist in doing that and to be able to help level up and then to be able to move on. And now getting to the point where I can now teach that to my students as well so we can make automated biscuit dispensers and other fun stuff love it I mean we all need an automated biscuit dispenser that sounds bloody awesome (laughs) so um I like that you talk about mindset because that's Mm. one of my favorite things to talk about ever right and that's kind of what I wanted to go back to when you said you know I kind of had this crazy idea of of doing this kids club and you know teaching kids I think a lot of people have 
lots of ideas of things that they could do. And they dismiss them before they've even given that idea half a chance. They will come up with a hundred, if not a thousand reasons as to why they shouldn't do something that, you know, where, where they have a little tiny spark of an idea. What is it about you that has a little spark of an idea that then goes, right, I'm going to make this happen? Uh, Well, it, it all comes back to that moment I mentioned earlier, because I'm not afraid to fail. So I was learning Spanish when we lived in Spain. And the re- my wife thought she was going to be excellent at it, by the way. And it turned out that I was better, mostly because I wasn't afraid to look like a complete buffoon going and ordering stuff. Because, I mean, every time I went in the supermarket, they would immediately laugh as soon as they saw me because they knew that we're, they were about to have the most ridiculous <laughs> conversation. But, but that's, that's the difference. I'm not afraid to look a bit stupid uh, or to have a go because I know that you've got to go through that sort of arc to be able to get to the, the nugget at the end. So a lot of people have great ideas. Loads of people have fantastic ideas. Those nuggets of doubt would almost certainly come back to that one time when they drew something as a kid and showed it to their parent or their teacher or whoever who dismissed it and was like, a bit rubbish. You know, couldn't you try harder? Why didn't you do this? And those things, those little seeds grow. You know, they're, they're, they're things that are deposited into our memory before we even know they're really there. And they can grow over time to a point where we don't do anything. And if we're too afraid to fail, we become too afraid to try. And if we're too afraid to try, what are all those things that we're going to miss out on that could be absolutely exceptional? And you will have to go through all the nonsense to get to the good thing at the end. I'm I'm a year into doing this project for my accountant now, and I've been through, I think, 10 or 12 different iterations, and they've been from the sublime to the ridiculous. I'm now landing on something that is actually sensible. Most people would have given up probably, I don't know, eight months ago. You know, but I know there's a solution there and I'm very, very close to it now. And you've got to be able to go through that. You know, you've got to be able to get sort of beyond what people said about you. And if there are things that people have said about you, wouldn't it be good if you could figure out what that was and then remove that limiting belief? Like, you know, effectively go in, uh, select all, delete, replace with something positive. My mindset is absolutely key for everything. Like my kids club, whilst we do a lot of making all, all the all the crazy stuff like things down there, it's actually there's like a, there's like two parts of the narrative. There's the thing we're working on today, which could be a monorail or it could be a biscuit dispenser or it could be whatever it is. But actually, the the sub story, the the overarching story arc behind it is all about mindset. Mm-hmm. It's all about giving kids those absolutely critical things they need that they'll need for that entire life, no matter what job they do, which is there's something in front of you and you don't know how to do it. What are all the ways you could think of? Because there's not just one. What are all the ways you could think of to solve that problem? Of those ways, what could we do? What should we do? Now let's down select it to, to a set. What are we going to make and how are we going to make it? And what have we got access to? And what you know do we have money for? And all those other things. And then testing those things and then communicating them to somebody else all those inherent bits are absolutely core to design technology if you take the crux of all of them they're useful for literally any job on the entire planet and a load of it comes just back to mindset and if you think you can or you can't you'll probably be right yes I love that and I and I love the fact that you're working with children because that is when we're influenced most and that's where all those seeds are planted that we then grow through experience and and stuff like that I'm curious when you're working with kids can you tell apart the children who have parents who have a very similar mindset to you that have this sort of can-do attitude versus kids who maybe have parents that you know will say oh well that doesn't look like a flower that you've just drawn there that looks more like a shoe (laughs) or you know whatever can you tell the difference and to what extent can you influence what goes on in that child's brain at this point? Sure. I think I've got a fairly good example for that. And, and so can I tell the difference? Yes, it's, it's painfully obvious because you've got the ones who just dive in and get stuck in and, and do stuff. And then you've got the other ones that if like one thing is missing, they're like, oh, I haven't got the, the thing I need. I need this. Otherwise, I cannot move on. You're like, but there might be another way. You probably could or you know, you could ask in a different way. But actually, um, and I don't know if this is like a, a male-female thing as well. I suspect there is some of that in there. 
but there was a moment when I was working at my old school, actually, in, in Chesham Grammar School, and we were doing a workshop with a bunch of kids, students, um, and I observed from a distance this this girl, and she was basically, nobody was doing anything, and so she gathered them all together, <clears throat> she gave them all roles, she gave them all things to do, and she's like, look, this is all going to do, blah, 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 and I, I went over, I was like, this is wicked, um, and I said to her, cool, so what's the plan? And then she said to me, well, this is probably wrong, but... And then I don't really know what she said next because I just stopped her. I was like, I'm going to stop you there. Why did you say that? She goes, well, it's probably not right, is it? I'm like, why? I was like, what you say about yourself matters. And so if you're starting every sentence with, this is probably wrong, but you're already convincing yourself that it's wrong. when it probably isn't. And it wasn't. <clears throat> I got to say to her in that moment, I was like, right, we're going to park for this moment and to say to you what you are as a leader because I've just witnessed you take your entire team and give them all roles to do. You've you've risen up out of anybody there and you've organised this situation. Now everybody's got something to do and now they can crack on with it. So what you are as a leader and what you're not is incorrect because you are absolutely correct about what you're going to do. So how about next time? Don't start the sentence with, this is probably wrong, but. What about starting with, this is what we're doing and this is my recommendation. I love so, it. I yeah. love it because you're not just teaching kids over here if you if you put a screw there this will happen if you you know but like you're not teaching them you know how to build stuff I mean that there's an element of that but I love the fact that you're teaching kids that it's okay to think differently it's okay to think big it's okay to get things wrong it's okay to experiment I really love that and also it takes it takes everybody to do all this stuff like I, I'm a, a kind of a one-stop shop for everything I can because of my background I've kind of done a bit of everything but there are some things I'm really good at and there's some things I'm absolutely hopeless at because I've tried it all don't get me to do it, admin I'm rubbish at it I don't enjoy it I don't want to do it I'm not going to do it but you know when you're in that moment with all those different people it takes somebody to be a leader in that moment and it takes some other people who are doing the doing and the actioning and, and the writing down and the drawing it takes all those different skill sets so it's, you know, we try and get this lot of one size fits all education thing for everybody to have a go at doing. And, and then people decide that they're failures based on whether they did well or not at that thing. And that's not really true. It's just that's just not your thing. You know, yeah. what, let's find out what is your thing totally. and let's absolutely smash that thing. And then we'll bring those other things up. You know, we, we will work on those other bits. But if you're exceptional at something, let's figure out what that thing is and let's absolutely smash the heck out of it. Yeah. In your talk, I keep referring to your talk because it was just jam-packed full of so much <laughs> fascinating stuff. One of the things that you talked about was hypnotherapy. Right. I'd really love to know more. How, what part does hypnotherapy play or what part has it played in your life? Um, yeah, hypnotherapy has been really, really interesting, actually. I mean, I grew up watching Paul McKenna on telly, <clears throat> making people believe that they're a, a chicken or goodness knows what else. But actually, he's got an incredibly credible career and he's worked with some of the top people out there who absolutely swear by what he's doing. And it was my wife initially that came across somebody local to us who was a clinical hypnotherapist, somebody called T. Tate, who is an amazing human being. She's really, really cool. Um, and actually, what's lovely is that I, I like to consider her now as, as a friend because we, we know each other better. And we've done all sorts of creative stuff together as well, which, awesome. is, which is really good. But Dipti's got um, a load of different, um, all, all, all the different things you could possibly want to download to listen to. And as I say, I used to be massively sceptical, but I saw a transformation in my in my wife, and she also worked with my kids as well. Um, and, <clears throat> you know, I, I'm working off the evidence that I see in front of me, which is that they used to have some a variety of different negative thoughts about certain situations which were then not there i could see the before and i could see the after and as an engineer somebody's quite logical in that respect i'm just looking at the evidence in front of me so i went along to do a session with dipsy uh, which is a, a session about limiting beliefs and it was all actually trying to figure out what is that thing that you believed as a kid or what is that thing that was holding you back like that <clears throat> people have got things in fact they've probably got multiple things that are limiting them from doing what it is that they could potentially do. And so I spent a bit of time with her figuring out what that might be. What were, uh, they? Also, what were the limiting beliefs for you? Are you, are you okay my to one share? Was, was actually about the need for other people to work with. I, I was consistently waiting to try and find a business partner, try and find somebody else 
and and when I found that person then I would be able, then finally I'd be able to make it work mm-hmm. and actually I just got on and did it all on my own anyway once I stopped needing any of that kind of stuff my, my all the stuff I did with the, the education world I pushed that as to all the different parts of the globe and they went really really well more than that I was listening to a podcast so I, I'd go to I'd go to sleep listening to stuff because think about this your subconscious is incredibly powerful and whatever those things lurking in the back of your brain are they tend to actually kind of drive you towards situations whether you want to or not so what is it that you're putting into your subconscious what is already there and what are you loading into there to do things i now know that i can put problems into my brain and i can go to sleep and when i wake up in the morning my brain is defragged and it's figured it all out and worked out stuff and i work out and be like there we go that's what i'm gonna do it's amazing at, like, it's like magic isn't it yeah no, genuinely but if you think <clears throat> do, do you drive i do okay when you're driving these days are you thinking left a bit left a bit right a bit right a bit a uh, bit more accelerate a bit a bit more clutch right you don't think of any of that stuff right you're not thinking oh hey minute, breathe in uh and, and then out again and in and then left leg right leg left leg. you don't think about any of those things that is your subconscious being able to control your body to do things which are unbelievable like someone throws a ball at you, poof, catch it. Catch. You haven't even thought about it, right? So what else can you get your brain to do that it isn't currently doing? Or what can you change your brain from what it's currently doing to something better? And so we think about it as essentially like just programming our brains to be able to do better stuff. And if your brain is focused on better stuff, more creative stuff, more solution-focused stuff, so so Dipti stuff is solution-focused hypnotherapy, um, what what's the solution we want to try and move towards rather than consistently focusing on, on what the problem is and, and just sort of dwelling in there. Okay, that's great, but let's put that to one side. What's the solution? Where do we want to get to? Let's focus on that. And I can tell you that everything we've written down on every single list we've ever done of these are the things we want to do, tick, 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 tick. And my wife and I love making these lists. We've done it in America, did it in Ibiza. Um, I've got a big whiteboard full of stuff. Whatever those things are, you put them down there and then you start to work towards them. It's the same reason that we've got the dream boards, which I mentioned at the, the barn theatre for our kids. What is it you want to do? What is your dream? Write it down. Put it on a thing. My dream board is there. It's directly opposite me. So it's in my peripheral all the time. Yeah. I'm constantly filling my brain with what is it I want to do? And where do I want to get to? And then your subconscious helps drive you towards those things. 100%. And consequently, everything I wanted to happen is happening. I now am entirely in charge of my own day. Every single day. I get to say what I do. I'm working on um, projects uh, that are meaningful. I'm doing projects that have impact across the entire world. I'm doing all the education stuff I want to do. I'm doing literally everything I wanted to do because I said that's what I want to do. And my, my brain's helped me move towards that. You're appearing on amazing podcasts as a guest. Indeed, indeed, yeah. I've just Surely that was on... top of your list. <clears throat> it was up there. It's definitely up there. Yeah, well, next awesome. year I'm recording my own podcast. Uh-huh. So my own podcast starts next year. And uh, I'm going to be speaking at Wembley next year. And what? Yeah, amazing. Ridiculous. Yeah, ridiculous. All of the last. Uh, this has been the most mad year. Totally mad. So yes. everything that I set out to do. When I stood on the stage at the beginning of this year, <laughs> the only one that we haven't properly advanced is the book. It's still there. We're still going to do it. Just simply have not had time. We know what we want to do. We just need to get there. But I've got a podcast that I'm that we're running next year, which I'm ridiculously excited about because it's going to follow a really, really, really big, potentially game-changing, world-changing opportunity, which is to get all of the schools in the UK and beyond solving problems from as early as possible. This is my my big thing for next year, which I'm giving away for free. I'm going to get everybody doing it. And what I do know is that if you give things away for free, people don't value it. So that's fine. I'm going to get a few schools I'm going to work with for the first year and we're going to follow their stories and we're going to then record those stories cut it together in some amazing little films and then we're going to be showcasing them at a festival next october called brilliant festival which is all about stem in the northwest of england which i'm and and they're helping me and their their background is incredible and last year they reached six over six hundred thousand kids in the uk and beyond uh, and they're helping me to be able to take that and then be able to get it out everywhere as far as possible and wouldn't it be amazing Imagine 10 years in the future, all of those kids who grew up just thinking that solving problems is normal, that have grown up with a skill set to be able to solve any problem that is presented to them 
imagine what could happen in 10 years time ah do you know my favorite way to start a sentence is wouldn't it be cool if yeah well it's a good one and and people should do that more because what often happens is those things happen yeah wouldn't it be cool if yeah I love it. What a brilliant way to reframe everything because we live in a world where people are very happy complaining about everything constantly. Yeah. And I think if we can turn that sort of culture of whinging about everything into, okay, that's not working right now. How can we get it to work? What can we do about it? What's the potential in that situation? What's the opportunity? If you took that much energy and that much effort and that much time and actually put into doing something positive for yourself, yeah. Um, where would you find yourself differently? Yeah, totally. And that is really exciting. I couldn't agree more with you. Absolutely brilliant. So we keep, we you know, we keep touching on you leaving Dyson and then we get okay. sidetracked because there's too much yeah. to talk about. So let's go back to how okay. you finally ended up leaving Dyson. Um, it's not the first time I had him notice him. I did it uh, last year and they they persuaded me very strongly to stay. And I ended up in a different team, um, with, uh, went to principal engineer and started doing some similar stuff in, in a different way. But we just time... let's dissect that for a second. So <laughs> you on. hand in your resignation and what was your what reason did you give for your resignation at the time? Um, I write. I wrote quite a long letter. Just, just the, at the time, I was like, look, I still believe in, in the Dyson project, but at the minute, that one that one is definitely more emotive. Um, it was a, a time when a number of my friends were, were also leaving. And I didn't, at the time, I didn't see a future for myself with the company. And they were, given their two, they, they worked very hard to be able to move me into a different situation. And I became happy again, which was great. Anybody at any job goes through peaks and troughs, right? And if you have enough situations, it can it can push people towards a, a certain route. So I feel really pleased that I, I left Dyson on a high. Mm-hmm. I left Dyson very happy working on a project that I absolutely love that is genuinely extremely meaningful. And I hope they keep it going because it's one of the, the most important things I've done in my career. So that's exciting. But I carried on working for them, moved teams, got a new team, built up a load of new stuff. It was really, really good. Uh, and then this year, it, it got to the point where Dyson was more like this hobby thing that I did than than the day job. I had a fantastic team uh, who I rate extremely highly. Some of, the, some of the best people I've ever worked with. Just It was phenomenal. Every day was, was really good. But there was this opportunity to own my own time, own my own income with pretty much no ceiling on what that could possibly be and it was an opportunity too great to say no to yeah and at that point you're like okay I I can't do everything you know I've put myself in hospital this year so I I can't continue to do everything and this opportunity here is is just screaming at me and I can't keep telling kids about mindset and about positive attitude and then go for your dreams and that kind of stuff and then not do it myself I was like right we're doing this we're gonna make this happen and, and most fair, people make a big change for two one of two reasons usually it's because they've got to a point where things are so painful that the only way <laughs> forward is to make a change or right. they have such a strong vision of how things can be different that they can't help but not go right. after that well, i would definitely be in the second camp this time around so Sounds yeah like i've it. got an extremely strong vision and i could yeah, I'm very, very good at visualising. Being a creative person, I can absolutely see what the future could look like. And again, it was coming back to that mindset and hitting therapy and all that kind of stuff. We had written down something a little while ago. My, my wife talks about it quite a lot to me. Um, she talks about like the, the miracle question. There's loads of different people that talk about it. But what if you woke up tomorrow and a miracle had happened and you're living the perfect life, what does that look like? It could be literally anything for anybody. And I was able to write down after them poking and prodding me for a while, specifically what I wanted to do. And I realized I've probably got it in my notebook somewhere, but there was a day earlier this year where I had literally lived that life. I'd, uh, I'd woken up, I'd had some messages overnight from another country working on my project and we were resolving some problems. I then did a, a one-to-one with one of my students. I was then talking to a factory in, in Vietnam about some other stuff. 
I was tinkering on some of my own projects. Um, I was ordering bits to get my classic mini on the road. And I was, you know, I didn't need to go anywhere because I've got my own workshop and I've got my own facilities here. Um, And then I think I went for a drive later with my wife, just hanging out for a bit. And she's like, in fact, she went to speak to my daughter about it first because they they like to cook things up for me. But um, but she was like, Ben has just lived his his dream life, and and so they came bounding in. They were like, the thing you wrote down, all those things, tick 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 tick, all those things happened today. And it's like, huh, they did. It's possible. And how cool is that? Mental, yeah, absolutely. But it, it's you know, and so the thing I mentioned before about. It was my dream to work at Dyson. It's my 12-year-old dream. What's my 42-year-old dream? What's going to be my 43-year-old dream? You know, people make resolutions in January and then pretty much burn them to the ground by February. Yeah. Um, but but that's because they make goals that are uh, either too big or or they, they're, they're too wedded to things that have gone before. You know, we need to look more at those sort of 1% changes. What are those little incremental things? But still. Do, what is that version? Because the, the the big change, what is that the thing over here that is like miles away? And then, you know, you just kind of set your intention. And then what are the things you can alter or adjust to be able to get there on like a day-to-day basis? Yeah. Um, and and I think the, the New Year's resolution thing, I think also is that people base a lot of their New Year's resolutions on things that they should be doing. So, yeah. oh, I should le- lose, I don't know, five kilos because, you know, somebody told me to or <laughs> I don't like the way I look in photos or whatever. Mm. But there's actually not enough motivation yeah. to go beyond February, basically. Right. Um, so whereas you, you've got this very, very clear vision of what you want your life to look like. And that's then your compass. That's the thing that gets you up in the morning. That's what keeps you going when when you do have days where because um, I, I would wager a guess that not every day is exactly how you dream, dreamt it would be just before this just come off some really complicated phone calls yeah um yeah. you know it's it's not easy but uh, that's the nature of of making stuff it is um well that's the nature of life isn't it and we all have yeah. days where we're like oh my god what am I doing why am I doing this and I think if mm. you have this really really clear vision of why you're doing something and yeah. And you then, need to keep coming just, back to the vision. Yeah, that's the thing. 100%, so you don't yeah. just do it on like New Year's Day and be like, right, that's it. If you don't re-agree that on the second, third, fourth, fifth, all the way through, okay. you're going to fall off that path and go back to what is commonly familiar to you. And what I found is that pretty much anything can become familiar very, very quickly. Yes, yes, we are. We're creatures of habit, aren't we? Yeah. But we can break those habits quite easily as well, which is what a lot of people don't realise. So mm. going back to you handing in your res- resignation, can you remember how that felt? Because you resi- tried to resign before and then well, presumably I, the second time around you you had a bit more you, yeah, you know, resolve. I, I, I'd known, I already knew that I was going to do it. Okay. So I'd already spoken to my team earlier that year to say to them, look, by the end of this year, I won't be here. So they, they'd known for a really long time. But also the way things work uh, at Dyson, um, if you're in that area of the business, you go on to gardening leave uh, in minutes. Um, so I knew that as soon as I pulled the trigger that I would be out. So I just made sure that I sort of cleared the decks and <laughs> done that kind of stuff and, and got got things organised. And they're very kind. They've said, well, you've been here so long. We'll give you 30 minutes to say goodbye. And then I'll <laughs> keep you go. So then I was wow. on gardening leave for three months. Were there any fears when you finally handed in your resignation or were you at a point where you were just so at ease with what you were doing? No, um, mostly because of my fantastic business partner, he had managed to negotiate a situation where I was actually effectively getting a pay rise. So quite often when you start a business, you go, right, I want to spend all the money on this, whatever I thing is I need. And I've got no money. And then you go like this with cash and then eventually you come back up again. But actually I notched up. And and so it took away some of those usual pain points for people where they're like, ah, how am I going to make this work? So that that's worked out very, very well for, for us um, to, to mean that I, it was easier to make that decision. Yeah. You know, so the fear would have been financial if you hadn't had that sort of backup. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Like like most families in the UK, um, you know, they're they're only like a few paid checks away from disaster, aren't they? Because yeah. you kind of just you know, you've got the car and you have a house and you have all the things and all your payments are going out and you know, um, 
but yeah it, that made that made things easier yeah what do you think would have happened if you had stayed at Dyson until the day you retire sometime in your 60s if you're lucky what like what how would that Ben be different to the bet you know it's the sliding doors question how do you think right. things would have worked out differently for you interesting thought I mean it wasn't that they didn't want me there at all they they did I'd gone for a number of different jobs I regularly I know every sort of two or three months they would present an opportunity to me to to do something or go somewhere um but most of the time those things are not what I wanted to do there was one in particular that I went for that I interestingly didn't get invited to um uh and so yeah I don't know I don't know I think I'm quite I, I do like the whole leadership side of stuff. I love designing things. I did say to my wife once, you know, if I if I ever get to the point where I don't have a pencil on my hand, you know, shoot me or shake me by the shoulders at least and make me understand what I'm doing. But, um, you know, I loved leading projects there. I loved taking people on that journey when we, when we had something to go after and then we could totally smash it out and make it happen. So, you know, if I had stayed there, I probably would have just, I don't know, um, I probably would have got higher in the company. I suspect at some point and found a found a niche for myself. I was quite happy doing what I was doing, to be honest. The the project as I say that I was working on was actually really very meaningful. Um, and I, if I could have got that one through, then I would have probably kept pushing to do more meaningful projects. I spent some time in America at one of our many adventures, um, working with people who were either homeless or significantly disadvantaged, and all sorts of other different random backgrounds, refugees and stuff it makes you very aware of your own sort of humanity and, and sort of what's important in life. You know, I mentioned about, you know, what if everything washed away, you're probably all right. You know, you wouldn't enjoy it. But I, but I sat with people talking to them who had just watched their homes washed away in, in Hurricane Katrina. Um, so I want to do things that matter. I want to make products with a purpose. I want to have a legacy that is meaningful. I want to leave behind something that is, is credible and useful. Um, not only because I can, but because I think there's there's a need to, there's a, there's a desire to. We need to change the way we're doing stuff. We need to get better at doing things. Our education needs to be better. The problems we are facing as humanity are only getting bigger and worse and that kind of stuff. And I, whilst I know that I'm not going to find a cure for cancer, if I can talk to and work with over a million kids and inspire them to believe in themselves, to believe that they can solve the problems that are out there and that, you know, they've got it in them, then there's untold positive, you know, change that, that I can probably have an effect on. No, one of the questions that I ask all my guests is what does success look like to you? And I don't know, it sounds like you might have just spent the last minute defining your version of success, but is there anything else that you would want to add to that? Um, I, yeah, 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 yeah. I think there's a really interesting thing where our society seems to focus on retirement. One day, one day you'll retire and then you can enjoy yourself. Then and I'll be happy. Then I'll be happy. Then I can finally play golf or go on holiday or do whatever it is I want to do. But what if one day never happens? What if one day never comes? I want to get to the end of my life and not regret that there was something that I could have done that I didn't do. So success for me means absolutely going full tilt, making it happen, going on every adventure that I want to go on, pushing as hard as I can to make all the projects happen I want to happen and not leaving anything left in the tank pretty much. One of the limiting beliefs that I have mm -hmm. is that I can't do everything that I would love to do because of my children whom I love more than life itself. But I, you know, because they need a certain amount of stability, they need, a, you know, they, they have needs which mm. are more important than my need for adventure. How do you make peace with that? I would say reframe what you believe they need. I think you have probably decided what they need because that's what society's told you that they need. And I suspect that they don't need that. I suspect that they need a version of it, but that version could be tweaked, it could be altered and could be created in a completely different way. Um, you know, kids ultimately need to know they're they're loved and that they're stable and they've got a future and that they're they're safe and all that kind of great stuff. And you can do that in a multitude of different ways. And almost none of that is necessarily staying in the same place and kind of keeping up with the Joneses. Yeah. Um, there there are a load of different versions of that that could be true. 
I mean, speaking of children, your children have had a slightly unconventional education. Do you mind sharing about that? Sure. Yeah. So right now, my eldest is in pre-16 at Swindon College. Mm-hmm. Um, and my middle daughter is doing online school, mm-hmm. uh, which is the paid thing. And then my youngest flexes. She does three days a week in school and two days from home. So we have an unconventional view on education, and that is basically what's the best thing you could possibly do for your child that suits them, rather than what's the one-size-fits-all bucket that we'll love our child in and hope that they're not sort of damaged or broken or, or you know, hope, let's hope it kind of works. Um, we're very, very fortunate that we're able to do what we do, basically, um, because of my roles and my, my job. Yeah, I mean, you say lucky. And honestly, most people that I've interviewed on this podcast, who have created a career that they love, use the word lucky. And I love this concept of luck. And I I love dissecting it. But it, I mean, none of this, Ben, has landed on your lap. You've made all of it happen yourself, haven't you, really? And yes, there will always be an element of luck. But you know, I do find there's a great book called The Luck Factor by, um, I'm going to say Richard Wiseman. And he talks about what makes somebody lucky or not. Right. And obviously, a lot of it is perception and mindset. But uh, yeah. I'm really fascinated that you say, well, we're lucky because we have this lifestyle. Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah. Yeah, we have a very positive outlook on life. And, and I don't know. Yeah. Yes. Uh, It is partly lucky that I was born in this country on this part of the world. Uh, You know, somebody turning up on on, on another shore in someone else's situation, it would be entirely different, wouldn't it? So from that respect, I'm white Western male and obviously ridiculously privileged. Um, I've had an amazing education that was free. uh, One of the better grammar schools in the UK um very very stable upbringing you know um so i really should have made something of myself <laughs> you owe it to, yeah, to all the babies yeah, that you've received much. yeah and yeah. just speaking of your children your children were in the well not yes they were in the audience and in fact yeah. at least two of your daughters were sitting behind us oh, okay and um i managed to have a very sneaky little conversation with them during okay. the school and um, what struck me is that you might expect that children who have been mostly homeschooled mm-hmm. might lack the social skills, oh, the confidence, the ability to have a conversation with an adult and looking them in the eye and all of this sort of good stuff that I think is completely priceless. Mm. Your children like ooze confidence. They a playful they're confident they're pleasant mm. they're happy How the hell have you done that they're very happy yes I think, I think a lot of it comes from how happy are you and how content are you in yourself and also i mean i think there's this total misnomer that the children are, and by the way the the difference there's a stark difference between homeschool and home ed so home educated and homeschool are very different Homeschool is where you're trying to recreate the school system in your own home. And, and some families take it to the next level and they wear a uniform and everything. Just don't wow. agree with that at all. But that's fine. They can do whatever they like in their family. Yeah. For me, home education is about how do I get my children to be utterly fascinated with the world? Like just pure curiosity where, you what, you want to know about that thing? Cool. Let's find 10 different ways to explore that thing and let's totally dive into it when you are interested and fascinated in it not when i'm telling you you're going to do maths at nine you know nine o'clock in the morning on a tuesday and they're like what are you feeling in that well just do it now you know but when they do want to do maths my kids love maths absolutely love it you know they're they're deeply fascinated by the world around them and the other thing with home ed is you know or, or actually the thing with school is we go uh you must only be with children of the same age and in like rural situations, it's only with people the same age and the same background, the same locality. Whereas if you're home educated, you have the opportunity on any day of the week to go and spend time with anybody of any age in any situation, wherever you are, and learn how to talk to them. Um, 
yeah, my, my kids love learning, absolutely love it. Um, it's, it's not true that kids don't like school or like education. They absolutely love it. My, my kids are doing my kids are doing fantastically well because they're in the right place for them. Yeah, I think you're right that the school system is kind of designed to make every child learn the same thing in the same way. And, and, and I understand why it has to. Yeah. yeah. And I understand why it has to be that way. Obviously, there's millions of kids um, that, you know, mm. need a level of education. And that's probably the, the most straightforward way of doing it. I wouldn't mind if the system was um, up to date. Yeah. You know, just taking the old system, getting kids ready to work in a factory and then just adding an iPad doesn't solve the problem. <laughs> right. Yeah. Or, or we've got an interactive whiteboard now, guys. But we're still doing the same thing. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, there, there's a massive surge at the moment uh, of people who want to do something differently and who are actively making that happen. Uh, and I'm pleased to say that I'm somewhere in the mix of those people that are making those um, those moves, which is exciting. Yeah. I love that. And I, I, I love that you have this emphasis on, on kids enjoying learning, because I think that you're right, that our, our education system does sort of hammer that love of learning out of kids. It's and I, I know for me... I did not enjoy learning at all at school. And now I can't learn enough. Like I want to be constantly listening to an audio book or podcasts or Mm. reading a book or listening to something interesting. Mm. You know, like I just, I'm like a sponge now in my forties, whereas, you know, in my teens, I was like, I like what? Not interested. No, thank you. (laughs) I, I love the fact that you're inspiring people all over the world, not just in the UK, and I really can't wait to see what 2024 has in store for you. Thank you yeah, so much it. for taking the time. Thank you very much for having me. It's, a, it's been... good practice for, for next year when I get to run my own podcast. Yes. No, you've been an absolutely fabulous guest, Ben. Thank you so much for your time. Nice. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Ben Edmonds. Do you remember the bit where he talks about hypnotherapy and he specifically mentions his hypnotherapist, Dipti? Well, I just had to look her up and I had to contact her because I was really curious. And it turns out that she has an app which has a free version. And if you're intrigued, as I now am, about hypnotherapy, then why not check it out? Just search Dipti, which is D-I-P-T-I in your app store and let me know how you get on. If you've enjoyed this episode and you can think of a couple of people that might also enjoy it, then please do share it with them. Until next time. Bye.